You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Well, last week we started the wonderful book of Acts. Um, second. Sorry. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, last week, if you were here, we started the wonderful book of Acts. And if you weren't with us or didn't listen to the podcast, I would encourage you to go. It's really easy uh, through the website or Apple Podcasts. You can go and... Um, There's some much-needed context of where the book of Acts sits in the entirety of Scripture um, that that it would be helpful as we go forward. And so if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to do that. But in a nutshell, what we studied and what we discovered last week was mainly where Acts sits in the canon of Scripture. Specifically, in the pl- in, in, in where in, in place in the New Testament it sits. And most importantly, we discussed how Acts originally was not written as a separate or individual book like we have in our Bibles today. But rather, it's a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. So Luke and Acts are actually one continued work. And the working definition that we that we that we kind of are going to spring off springboard off of last week was the book of Acts is the Acts of Jesus continued by the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the first Christ followers, i.e., the early church. In a nutshell, this is what the book of Acts is. It's a continuation of the gospel of Luke, and it's the acts of Jesus continued by the power of the Holy Spirit in Christians like you and I. Nothing special about them. Uh, Actually, very flawed, very uneducated, um, but used by God to see the work of God and the kingdom of God continue to the outer reaches of the world. And like I already said, last week we, we dipped our feet and studied a whole whopping two verses. Today we'll just do one verse. Slow it down a little bit more. Um, go real slow. There's so much to dig in. And so if you've already opened your Bibles or if you haven't already, uh, Acts 1, chapter 3. And as always, if you do not have a Bible, please grab one on the back tables. Um, teaching out of the NIV translation. So if you don't have an NIV, please just take a Bible. It's our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible, please take it home with you. Don't feel like you're stealing a Bible from church. We gave it to you. It's fine. Um, but for context sake, let's read Acts 1. 1 through 3, including uh, our text this week and last week. Acts 1, 1 through 3, it says this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So now that we're very slowly getting into the actual content of this book, uh, if you've been with us, 
when we've studied Mark or Philippians the last few years, when we start a book, I like to show you guys an animated video from the very people that Winter was talking about from the Bible Project. And um, it, it, gives, it does a way better job than I could explaining the content of the book of Acts in a more helpful way. And uh, it's... it's this video you're going to watch right now, it's like six minutes long to prep you. Uh, it's animated. This is the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, which is 28 chapters. Because Acts is so rich and there's so much to it, instead of doing one long video, they broke it up into four different videos. Um, but I wanted to just give us an overview. So this video that we're going to see right now gives, just gives us some framework into the context of where we're going, specifically where verse 3 of chapter 1 sits in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. You guys with me? All right, let's watch it. One of the earliest accounts about Jesus of Nazareth, his life, death, and resurrection, was written by a man named Luke. We know it as the Gospel of Luke but Luke continued the story in a second volume. Called the Book of Acts, and it's all about what Jesus continued to do after his resurrection. Acts begins with the disciples who are hanging out with Jesus, who's just come back to life, which is mind-blowing to imagine. And then for weeks, the risen Jesus kept teaching them about his upside-down kingdom, the new creation that he launched through his death and resurrection. This is exciting stuff, and the disciples are ready to go tell the world. But then Jesus tells them to wait and to stay in Jerusalem until they receive a new kind of power so they can be faithful witnesses to Jesus and his kingdom. Then he says that their mission is going to begin in Jerusalem, then move out to Judea and Samaria, and then from there out into the nations. It's like a road map for the whole book of Acts. Then the disciples saw Jesus enthroned as king of all creation. So the disciples wait, wondering when this power is going to come. And then comes the time of Pentecost. So this is an ancient Israelite festival it's during the early summer, and thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims would come back to Jerusalem from all over the world, all these different languages and cultures colliding in the city. And the disciples are together in a house, which is suddenly filled with rushing wind along with fire. Fire splinters off into tongues of fire hovering over people's heads. What's this all about? Yeah, so Luke is tapping into a repeated Old Testament theme. When God's presence showed up similarly at Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with Israel and gave them the Ten Commandments. Then later, when God's glory came in a pillar of fire, it filled the tabernacle when he came to live among them. But that was just one pillar of fire, not many. Exactly. Luke's making an important point here. This is God's personal temple presence, God's spirit that was foretold by Israel's prophets. And now it's come to take up residence in the new temple of Jesus' body, that is, his people. They've become little mobile temples where God now dwells. And they start to tell stories about Jesus, but they're speaking in languages that they didn't know before, yet all the visitors can understand them. What's this all about? Well, Peter gets up to explain that this is the fulfillment of Israel's hopes based on the scriptures. God's plan was always to use the unified family of Abraham to bring peace and justice to the world. But the tribes of Israel had been scattered because of the exile. Now here at Pentecost, representatives from all of the tribes come back together and they're introduced to their Messiah, the crucified and risen Jesus, so they can now become the restored people of Israel. And thousands of them start following the way of Jesus. Which brings us to Luke's tale of two temples. So you've got the temple that Herod built in Jerusalem, where Jesus' disciples worship like the rest of the Israelites. But now there's also Jesus' temple, which consists of people. 
This temple's meeting together in homes all over Jerusalem, and they were approaching life in a radical new way. Right, think about it. Many of these pilgrims aren't even from Jerusalem, so they formed these new families, and they're all depending on each other. Yeah, people would sell their stuff, provide for the poor among them. They ate their meals together. They said their daily prayers together. They were learning from the apostles what it meant to live as if Jesus is the true king of the world. And it must have been exhilarating. But it wasn't all fun and games. Being God's temple is serious business, just like in the Old Testament. So you might know about that strange story in the book of Leviticus about two priests who disrespect God in the temple and then suddenly die. Well, Luke includes here a similar story of two disciples who dishonor God's spirit in this new temple and they suffer a similar fate. So there's corruption in the community, but the bigger problem is coming from the outside. Yeah, from the other temple. Its leaders are threatened by this new messianic movement, and so they arrest the apostles, they try to stop them. And this brings us to the final story in the Jerusalem section of Acts. We're introduced to a new disciple, Stephen. Oh yeah, Stephen, he's on fire. He steps up as a leader among the disciples to serve the poor, and he would go to the temple courts to teach people about the way of Jesus. So the temple leaders arrest Stephen, and they find false witnesses to accuse him of dishonoring Moses and of being a terrorist who's threatening the temple. In response, Stephen gives this powerful speech about how predictable this whole situation was. Yeah, he retells the whole Old Testament story, highlighting characters like Joseph, Moses, and the prophets, people who are consistently rejected and persecuted by their own people. Israel's been resisting God's representatives for centuries, and so their rejection of Jesus and now of his followers is a rejection of God himself. They get angry, and they start to execute him by picking up rocks and smashing him to death. And as he's dying, he commits himself to the way of Jesus, to suffer because of the sins of others. He even cries out, Lord, don't hold the sin against them. This is basically what Jesus said at his death. Exactly. Stephen becomes the first martyr of the Jesus movement, with many more to come. But this persecution contains seeds of hope, which is why Luke introduces us to a new character here, a religious leader named Saul. He stands over Stephen's dead body and even approves of the whole thing. Wait, Saul, you mean the man who becomes the apostle Paul? Yes. Luke is showing how even this tragic murder can't stop Jesus' kingdom. And so many persecuted disciples scatter out of Jerusalem, and just as Jesus said, they head into Judea and Samaria. Now, the story of what happens there, that's what the next section of Acts is all about. Pretty cool video. Uh, really helpful to understand where we're going. And this is What's happening is this is the first quarter of the book of Acts that will take us several months to go through. And, but, but all of that's, what's happening here in these first few chapters, in this long book, in this long story, is pretty foundational to the whole rest of the book. And what's foundational to even any of this happening, and even foundational to our own faith itself, is what's happening here in verse 3. What's foundational to the very faith that we believe and why we're gathered here today is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That one thing, have it or don't have it, will make and break our faith. It's that important. So before any of that happens, what's foundational is where we sit in verse 3. The time that Jesus presents himself 
to the multitudes over a period of 40 days, showing that he truly is resurrected. Paul the Apostle that we just are going to learn about, that we just saw, would go as far to say in 1 Corinthians 15 um, that it's pivotal to our faith at all. He says this, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 18, Paul speaking. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless. And your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection from the dead. And if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope is in uh, in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be uh, pitied than anyone in the world. It's a big deal. So if Jesus' resurrection didn't actually, literally, historically happen, then our faith and beliefs don't hold water. What Paul makes the point of is that if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we are still dead in our sins. We are still guilty. No resurrection means no gospel, no salvation. We're stuck in our sins, and eternity will be spent apart from God in a place like we don't want to talk about called hell. It's the biggest deal in the world if Jesus did raise from the dead or didn't. The resurrection is the basis upon which all of Christianity is built. The foundation is really important. The same would be true of any home that you build, right? Any building, any home. It does not matter uh, if this is your dream home and you pour tons of money into your dream kitchen and your furnishings and you have like two of these TVs on your walls and you get everything you want, but your foundation's bad, especially here in Hawaii, built on a hill with rain, with winds, whatever it is, your whole house will either be sliding, crumbling, or just fall apart in general. does not matter anything that you put in the home if your foundation is bad. Same with our faith. Nothing matters. No Bible verse, no Bible story, no gift, no blessings matter if we don't have the resurrection. It's that big. This is why... The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a part of what we call Orthodox Christianity. Um, so like if any other person or Christian or church denies that Jesus actually physically rose from the dead and that he didn't defeat death, then we aren't the same. We're not even on the same wavelength. We're miles apart. The distance is as great as like the entire Pacific Ocean between here and the mainland. Like we're not even, you can say everything else, but if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, nothing else matters. We're not even on the same life because it's a core belief that we cannot compromise on. And if we know anything about Christianity and, and um, evangelical churches, we can be so different about so many other things. 
And we should still call each other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And we may have like huge liturgical and theological differences. But that, that is okay. But if we can agree on something as core as the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, then it's a deal breaker. Then no longer are we the same. It's that big a deal. So that's why Luke writing this is so purposeful by starting by giving us a solid foundation to stand on. Because everything else is, is valid or, or it gives validity to everything that follows if Jesus truly did raise from the dead. And so what Luke says here, over the course of 40 days, the resurrected Jesus appeared and gave convincing proofs that he was indeed risen, alive, and the tomb he was placed in after the cross was empty. That, oh, that's, that's literally what's happening in one verse right now. That is all that's happening. And Luke is trying to make sure that we know and we stand upon a firm foundation. Uh, the reason Jesus appeared, uh, as one commentator said, he said this. Over a period of 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension to heaven, Jesus appeared at intervals to his apostles and to other followers in a manner which could leave no doubt in their minds that he was really alive again, risen from the dead. Right? So what are some of these convincing proofs? Um, just prior to what I just read you in 1 Corinthians from Paul, he gives us a bit more detail of what these con convincing proofs were and who Jesus appeared to. Let me uh, kind of backtrack in the book of 1 Corinthians and read it to you right now. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, Paul speaking. He says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried, but then he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, uh, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. So Paul, like Luke, is writing this to bring evidence to the case or truth that is being questioned. Because if you know anything, the truth of the validity of Jesus' raising from the dead has been one of the most debated topics for two millennium right now. For 2,000 years... This has been debated over, and it's important that we as believers know some of the evidence, some of the eyewitnesses, some of the, some of the things that Jesus did while he was raised from the dead that gives us some proof, some validity to the foundation of our faith. Make sense? So I wanted to highlight just a few. This is like there's many books written about this, um, and I'll suggest a few at the end. But I wanted to highlight a few of the personal interactions that Jesus had during his 40 days after death with these people. Uh, first is the 500. There's 500 people he, he, uh, over that time that he, that he interacted with. Then also... Uh, the breakfast with Peter and some of the others on the shore of Galilee from John chapter 21. 
And then, uh, as we all know, doubting Thomas and the proof of his hands and his side in John chapter 20. So first, the, the 500. So over the course of 40 days, Jesus appeared to more, more than 500 eyewitnesses that he was indeed alive and risen from the dead. If you know anything about a court of law or a case or building evidence, uh, the power of even one eyewitness to any crime is a powerful piece of evidence to prove a case. But in this case, more than 500 people over the course of 40 days interacted and met with and saw the risen Lord. And so many um, will say that the disciples just made this up. They concocted this grand idea. This, uh, this, they just made up uh, like a tale and spread it. And that one tale from his followers just reached the entire world. But Jesus did not only just appear to the 12, but he appeared to hundreds of people in numerous places for almost seven weeks after his crucifixion. And really the proof is even in, in, in history we have, right? According to ancient manuscripts, Christian and non-Christian, there's actually more accounts of Jesus actually existing than Julius Caesar. But we would never question if Julius Caesar was actually a historical person. There's actually more evidence, non-Christian and Christian, that Jesus is who he said he was. And the impact was so incredible on his followers Another undeniable effect, uh, post-cross, Jesus dies on the cross, their Messiah dies. What do his, his best followers, his closest friends do? They run for the hills. Like they go back to their old life. They thought, wow, I thought this was the, was the Messiah. I thought he was going to save everybody. He just died. We just buried him. They depart. They lose faith. They scatter. Uh, they deny him. They forget. But then they see him. And post-seeing Jesus, these cowering, cowardly disciples turned into a unified, emboldened group of believers proclaiming a risen Messiah. And they were so sure about it that their message, with their message, they were willing to be tortured and die for it. Seems pretty far-fetched to be made up. They ran away in front of everybody, but once they saw Jesus, it was so real to them that he had conquered death, that they were willing to spend their entire life and be tortured and die for it because they had seen him. So these 500 people, they saw him, they touched him, they learned from him, and they knew he had truly been resurrected. Again, it's not just one, it's not just two people on a street corner, it's 500 people over the course of seven weeks that saw him. And so that's how the gospel spread. It wasn't just a group of 12 making something up, but it was hundreds of people over the course of 40 days. But then Jesus did narrow down and he did come and meet with some of his closest friends. Specifically uh, in John chapter 21, Jesus appears to seven uh, of his disciples, Peter and the, and, and the gang on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, if you know the story, what's happened is, right, they've scattered from Jerusalem. They've made the trek back up to northern Israel, Galilee. It's about 75 or so miles. But if you remember, Peter, by trade, was a fisherman. A lot of the, the disciples were. And so where did they go? They went back to what they knew. They went back to their father's trade and their grandfather's trade. And so they went fishing again. 
that kind of three-year kind of fling with Jesus, and we thought it was good, is over. They're defeated. They're discouraged. They go back to fishing. And what happens is, is that, you know, Jesus from the shore of the Sea of Galilee um, calls out to them, and he says, what are you guys doing? Like, we're fishing, and they haven't caught anything. And, uh, you know, through a, a series of interactions, Jesus says, why don't you cast your net on the other side of the boat? They, like, get 153 fish or whatever. They pull it in. It's almost going to capsize the boat. Peter realizes that Jesus, he, like, jumps off the boat, swims to Jesus. And then what happens is, is that Jesus actually cooks them breakfast on the shore of Galilee, sitting on the ground, real intimate, bread and fish, and they commune with one another. They share a meal. They sit. They talk. They eat. Peter... Uh, about 10 chapters later in Acts would recall this. And he would say this, Acts chapter 10, verses 39 through 41. Peter speaking, and we apostles are witnesses of all he did, speaking of Jesus, throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear, not, not only to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Ten chapters later in Acts, Peter is recalling what happened here in John chapter 21. Jesus presented himself uh, to their senses, right? To their eyes, to their ears, to their hands. And he was indicating that he was no ghost, but he could be seen, heard, and touched. But also one of the, the famous you know, interactions that we have is uh, Thomas, or, or Doubting Thomas. Unfortunately, that's his nickname that he got coined forever because of this one interaction. But a chapter earlier in the Gospel of John, John chapter 20, Jesus had appeared to many of his disciples and they were amazed and they believed. But one of his disciples, Thomas, um, had not been there and didn't believe the other disciples. They're like, no, you didn't see him. I don't believe you. Like, see it to believe it type of thing. That's what he was saying. But then Jesus, probably hearing him or knowing he's God so he knows it all, made a special trip or whatever. I don't know what he was doing. But he came to Thomas and proved to Thomas that he truly was risen from the dead. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 28. It's on the screen. It says this. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, was not there with the, when the others of Jesus had come. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound of his side. He's really doubtful. <laughs> like specifics he needs here. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. The Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. The proof was tangible. Thomas had just felt the scars and wounds from the cross. He was dead, but now he was alive. So why does, what does this all mean? Why does it matter? Right, there's, there's more, there's lots more evidence to prove the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But 
the, the, the real question, the, the really the only question that all of us sitting in this room need to wrestle with. And we have to decide for ourselves what we believe about it is your verdict on the resurrection. That's all that matters and all comes from that. The question is, you know, if you, if you question this, nothing else matters. We've talked about that. Because your verdict about Jesus raising from the dead is either the greatest historical event in history. And it gives validity to the rest of what Jesus said. Every single word. Or it's been a movement that billions of people in every country, in every century, have believed based on the most elaborate set of lies ever known. It's that big a deal. My point being, it's not something that we can easily dismiss. Like we all need to decide for ourselves what we believe. For homework, some great books, uh, the Case for Christ or The Case for Easter being some of them. Write them down if you do question this. Obviously, read the Bible in its entirety. That will help you. But if you need some more, um, the basis of those books, more or less, is an atheist investigative journalist that tried to, that set out to disprove this ridiculous notion of the resurrection. In doing so, converted himself to be one of the most staunch believers and apologists to defend the historical reliability that Jesus truly did raise from the dead in every sense of the word. Um, so go read those if you need some more. Here's what, here's what I kind of want to bring it home real quick. E even as a pastor, I don't, I don't get all of this. When I, when I mean by all of this, I mean the Bible, I mean God, I mean how it all works. Um, even as a pastor, you think, he knows everything. Not true. Shouldn't think that about pastors. We're people just like you. But I don't understand still so much about who God is. About the Bible. Specifically, how the Bible and how God and his character fits in with this world that I live in. I'm like many of us. And, and to be honest, that's okay. He's God. If I could understand God, he wouldn't be God. But, but it's, it's okay to not understand everything. Some of it may become clear, some maybe not. But what matters for me, for you, is what I believe about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything else, can, 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 we, can, we can figure that out. But what does matter and what I can cling to, and everything else actually isn't as important even though there's really important things about the Bible and about God. But what it comes down to is, do I believe this truth as the bedrock of my faith? Paul, being as witty and smart and educated as he was, he said it actually, that this is actually all that matters. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Like, that's it. No strings attached. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Oh, but what do you mean? I thought, like, 
I had to, you know, utter some kind of magic prayer or try harder or I had to be a better person. It's not true. It comes down to a very simple but very profound and essential belief that Jesus rose from the dead. So for those of us that do believe this, this should be a huge reminder that Jesus did what he said he would do. Like, Jesus' words are true. There's validity. We can trust in every single word that he uttered. Also, what this should do for us is it should be a reminder that, that what he did and Christianity in general is set apart from every other God or religion. Because, uh, you know, famously R.C. Sproul said it this way. He said, the claim of resurrection is vital to Christianity. If Christ has been raised from uh, the dead by God, then he has the credentials and the certification that no other religious leader possesses. Buddha's dead. Muhammad is dead. Moses is dead. Confucius is dead. But according to Christianity, Christ is alive. It, not all... Not all religions are the same. Not all road leads to heaven. Jesus sets everything apart by his death and his resurrection. So because of that, if we believe that, the entirety of the canon of scripture is true and proven by God doing everything he said he would. So think about that. That behind every word, every promise, every Bible story, all of it, isn't just a feel-good and encouraging book. It's a book that words have been proven by hundreds of years prior with prophecy saying that Jesus was going to die and rose again. Jesus predicting his own death and raising from the dead exactly how he said he would. And then him dying and rising again and showing himself to a multitude of witnesses. So this book that we have and every single word in it, we can believe because of what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection from the grave. Amen? Amen. So we can stand upon that. Our weeks should be different because of that. The responsibilities that you have this week, uh, the job you're trying to do but you don't like, the family situation that's difficult, your finances where you're going to live next month, what you're going to do with your kids next year for school, all of that should be formed by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and so every single word is true. So believe it, hang on to it, grab hold of it and apply it to your life. Amen? Amen, let's pray. God, we thank you. God, thank you is not even enough. Eternity won't be long enough to worship you for what you've done. You died in our place to forgive our sins and then you rose again, not only paying the penalty for our sin, but also freeing us from its power, giving us abundant life here and eternal life to come. That there is hope in this life and hope in the next because of what you've done from raising from the dead. And Jesus, it's only right 
that now we enter into a time of praise and exaltation and worship because of who you are and what you've done. But God, we're mindful that for some of us, this is still a wrestle. This is still hard to believe. This is still something that we're not sure of. In the same way that you presented yourself with convincing proof that you were alive, I pray that you would do it to all of us. Whether it's in this moment, whether it's this week, whether it's when we're driving to work this week, would you present yourself by your word and by your spirit as a convincing proof that we serve and love the one true living God, that the grave could not hold you, that you are alive, that you are seated at the right hand of the Father. And because of that, we have hope.